Hello, and again, welcome to BitDepth. I'm Santiago Ramones. Across from me is... Justin McAleese. Thank you for saying your name out loud so that I can learn how to pronounce that correctly. <laughs> yep, it's like if there's a an A between the M and the C. That's, that's the easiest way to say it, McAleese. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so who are you? What do you do? Uh, I'm a filmmaker from Fresno, California. It's the simplest way to say it. I have a business called uh, Blur Media that we do uh, filmmaking and all sorts of video production with. Yeah, awesome. How did you first get started doing film? I switched my major in college. I was going to be a mechanical engineer, and then I wasn't having that. And so I switched over to filmmaking, essentially. And that's what I've been doing for the last 20-some-odd years since then. So it's been cool. It's, it's, I'm, I don't see how it could have ended up any other way. Yeah. So I guess why, why did you start with mechanical engineering? And then what sort of brought you over to film later yeah i've i think i've always liked technology i've always been interested in how things are put together how they're built um and i realized at some point that you know for one i sucked at calculus and for two Mm -hmm. i like just i wasn't all that interested it felt really just there wasn't a lot of uh, a word I like ebullience within that realm. It seemed like a lot of very orderly, boring, slow, dry, just like I wasn't feeling it. So anyway, my friends and I were making videos and that just seemed like so much more fun. And we were doing sort of jackassy type stuff back then mm-hmm. before Jackass was around and all that. Um, nothing too crazy, but um, we were having fun doing that. And so I was like, let's just I'm going to give this a shot. Clerks had just come out, the Kevin Smith movie, and I was like, that, yeah. I could do better than that, um, which isn't necessarily true, but um, it, it seemed like a good idea at the time, and so we switched over, and yeah, I've just been doing it ever since, and it's taken me very many directions that I didn't think I was going to be going in at all. Yeah, yeah definitely. I guess, so since you mentioned Clerks, what what are some of your bigger influences as you were starting out that like as you were watching films growing up and you're like man I want to do that yeah it's hard to say because there's always the stuff you love and that you really think is great but then that's not necessarily like an attainable thing that you can think that you would do I mean if you're a singer songwriter that you know plays acoustic guitar you probably also want to be Led Zeppelin or whatever, you know, like on the stage with all these other people in this big, huge, bombastic band or whatever. But that doesn't mean that that's what you're going to do. So it's like, um, uh, you know, around then I did <laughs> a freshman, sophomore year of college. I really liked the movie uh, uh, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, the Guy Ritchie mm-hmm. movie that felt very like indie. And I actually had like a bad VHS copy of it that was um, <laughs> uh, that had gone through uh like like anti-pirating stuff so it was really wavy and it was broken (laughs) sort of and somehow that added to the appeal of it i gave it to my my buddy one time to watch and i was like hey man chick is my favorite movie whatever and he's it's like it's all messed up i couldn't even finish it and i was like no dude that's part of it it's great but it was um yeah it would it would like go dark for a few seconds and then zora to come back up and anyway so (laughs) i think uh that was one of the like sort of attainable type feeling movies back then and uh there was some other uh that movie slacker or there was slacker but then there was also um days that confused there was something about that that felt attainable and like you could do that simple stories so um both of those are uh, richard Linklater movies and yeah it was 
you know, it was a much different time in independent film than it is now. Um, with all your spikes, spike, uh, spike leads and, um, you know, a, a ton of other filmmakers that were important then that just went out with a few hundred thousand dollars and made a movie and El Mariachi and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And then what are you into now? I guess whose movies and what, what's influencing you now and what's driving you? Yeah. Um, You know, there's a big divide, I think, between like what I can do as a filmmaker or like like what can be done as an independent filmmaker who doesn't have a million, a five, ten, hundred million dollar budget in the movies that I like. So it's sort of hard to say like, oh, I want to like these are the ones that I still envision doing versus like what other people are doing. So I love a lot of, you know, sort of populist filmmakers. Um, there's certainly the Coen brothers, Wes Anderson, David Fincher, uh, PT Anderson, you know, I, there's a lot of filmmakers that I think make brilliant stuff, um, these days. And, and, but, but, you know, that's like, it's a different level in, in many ways. And, and not to say that we couldn't, you know, my friends and I couldn't write a story as good, maybe, hopefully. Not to say that we couldn't make something look quite the same level of beauty or, or level of complexity of a shot or something like that. There's there's some of those things that are certainly attainable. But um, I think it's a, a thing of just getting those people on board, those sorts of actors to be in your project is is definitely a whole nother echelon that like it's hard to it's hard to get there. Packaging is a yeah. bitch. And that stuff is what that comes down to. You know, you have to marry your distribution with your project, with your actors, with your funding all simultaneously. And it's one of those things of like when you go to get a job and they're like, we need five years experience to get this job. And you're like, well, how do I get the job without five years experience? You know, that whole like catch 22. That's what filmmaking is a lot of times. (laughs) Yeah. you are talking a lot about kind of like the the filmmaking process and like budgets and stuff. So like I guess I guess just lay it out for those of us who like we think we know and like we follow media and like Hollywood and there's like this perception of what it really is but it's it's not actually nobody really knows unless they're like in the trenches doing it like you are. So like for you, what is the process of making a film? Yeah, so as a professional video production director, director of photography, editor, all those things. Like that's my day job when I'm making a movie or trying to work on my own personal indie film. That's also my day job. So Mm -hmm. it sort of goes between. So, you know, the movie that I made that I started making essentially 11 years ago, 2009 is brick madness. And that's a a mockumentary about a national bricks tournament, Lego tournament. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was working on it in a variety of ways when I had the time, when I wasn't shooting other stuff for other clients and we were trying to do whatever we could to get it done. And, you know, clearly it took a very long time to do that. And so you, you're, you're trying to make the money and sustain your own company and and do all the things to have a successful video production company while you're trying to do video production on the other side of it simultaneously. And that can be very difficult. Um, that's a, it's still a better place to be than just be a quote unquote filmmaker, like going from project to project, hoping that you can make enough money on the last one to be able to sustain yourself for the next one, because that's become an increasingly difficult thing to do. Uh, 70s, 80s, 90s, maybe 2000s, like that was possible. There is a very large difference 
between the two things now, I think. It's not a, it is no longer in the last couple of years, like you can make a movie for a hundred grand without like bigger talent than you would think that you would be able to get and expect to get all hundred grand of that back and expect to make the money to actually put food on the table. Like to think that you could just go do a hundred, spend a hundred, even if it wasn't your money and then get 250 back to pay for your time. Like that's a, that's a dice roll. That's a real, I mean, you got to hit the lottery a couple times to make that happen. Um, if people do it, it's difficult. Um, and, and so I would say my, my point is like having a video production company to rely on, to, to bring in the money and to do your, uh, to just provide that base, I think is, has worked out really well for me. And I'm very fortunate to be able to have that and to be able to go do other people's movies and work on their independent films, um, as part of that progress, that process. Um, so (laughs) it's, it's a complicated thing nowadays and I think working on other people's projects and getting paid to work as actual crew members is a more, much more sustainable way to do it than to just be like, here's my movie. I need a couple hundred grand. We'll make it back. It'll be great. Like, that's a <laughs> tough sell in 2020. Maybe not even 2017, but for sure 2020. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. It, there's, there's so much good content out there. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a lot of what it comes down to. Yeah. And then, I mean, kind of now as well as like, I don't know, I feel like I spend almost as much time on like streaming services as I do YouTube, for example. And so like you you kind of talked about just like content in general. And so like there's a lot of really good film and content in general that's coming through YouTube and everything. So how, how has that kind of landscape shifted in, I don't know, especially recently with like just a lot of influencer culture and like YouTube and all this sort of stuff that's like the difference between film and content. (laughs) Yeah. It's a, it's a very, um, what would you say? (laughs) There aren't many boundaries now with the way that stuff's all put together. And that's Mm. a good thing. It's not necessarily a good thing for the creators in terms (laughs) of, if you're one of the sort of um, old school people that just wants to go make a movie, wants to make a 90 minute to a 120 minute thing and put that out there, put it in film festivals, get it picked up by a distributor, get people to see it and for, you know, put it in a theater, all that sort of stuff. Like that's just not a good reality these days. And so maybe, and I don't really know, but maybe your 20 year old Justin today who was born in 2000, for instance, would not even really give a damn about that. Maybe that wouldn't be the thing he was looking for. Maybe he would just want to go and make YouTube videos. I mean, that's like when you ask kids these days or like, what do you want to do with your life? And like, be a YouTube star. Like, that's their actual vocation. And you're like, well, yeah, but what does that mean? Like, what are you providing (laughs) to the world? And you're like, oh, views. (laughs) Like, there was a, a total side thing, but there was something on kids are effing stupid is this uh, a subreddit and anyway i think it was on that i forget but anyway it was a kid uh someone's like hey i was hanging out with my niece the other day and she literally said okay um like and subscribe and left and i think she literally thinks that's how you say goodbye like she Whoa. doesn't know that that's not the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> hey, wow. okay cool like and subscribe 
<laughs> which is like insane that it's just weird. Yeah. So anyway, um, great things are being made on YouTube, but it's a whole different world. It's like, that's not, it's, it's sort of like being like, I'm an, I'm a musician. I'm like, well, I paint like in some ways that's the difference between making what you would say is traditional movies and what you would mm-hmm. say is like two minute YouTube videos with graphics to catch people's attention, you know, CGI type right. stuff. And I'm not, I'm not demeaning that by any means. I'm saying I don't understand it as well as some people. And it's also become a world where like, which is good because you have to be the artist that if you have a YouTube channel and you get the views, then eventually other people will, other people with money and power and whatever it happens to be sponsorships will be able to, um, to, to, to put you on a bigger platform, theoretically. Mm-hmm. I mean, YouTube is a pretty big platform, but um, they'll be able to do that. And that wasn't like how it used to be. It used to be like you would put it at a film festival and then you got in and someone saw it in one of the film festivals and then they're like, yes, we like this and we'll do something with it. Um, and you didn't have to have an audience then. Like mm-hmm. if it was your first movie, Steven Soderberg, Soderbergh's first movie at a film festival didn't actually have an audience Yet it had a hundred people there, but he didn't have a hundred one million subscribers. He hadn't already mm. built that whole thing, and so it's this weird thing where like people actually had to take a the people with the money actually had to uh, wager something back then. They actually had to have talent at seeing what it was, and like I'm gonna I'm gonna put my money on this dude and this person. They're gonna make they're gonna they're gonna make something in the world, and that's not how it is at all anymore. Because they're like, well, they got a million subscribers. I'm just gonna ape. I'm just going to steal that. I'm just going to take some value out of that. And so there's like, there's no talent scouting whatsoever anymore in that sort of sense. It doesn't, because the the artists themselves have already had to prove a hundred percent of what they are. Mm -hmm. It's weird. It's different. Yeah. That is, that is very similar to how the music industry has gone as well in that. I mean, I'm a musician and so it's like it, it is very much like if you can do it yourself, then maybe we'll, finance you or like sign you or whatever it might be but it, it is kind of this backwards thing and so i guess for you what and does are you are you like yeah but if i can do it myself then why do i need you like, yeah exactly there's that weird <laughs> double-edged sword there right you're like oh well prove yourself and then we'll come care and we're like yeah but just how the hell am it's i like gonna I already get there did without it, some so help? i don't need you anymore yeah it's just a weird it, the incentivizing <laughs> is just odd and backwards and all that. Anyway, sorry to cut you off. What were we going to say? No, you're good. Uh, well, I guess, so what does a, like, successful movie look like to you whenever you make a film and, like, great, we did great. What what criteria are you meeting to call that great? Yeah, I mean, in a lot of days, in, in a lot of ways, it is, like, we made back our money and we got to go make another one that will hopefully make back our money. And it's part Mm. of just the fun of doing it and the fun of being part of that process and to be able to make a movie and for the actual art of like, God damn it. I made a film and people get to watch this film. Like that was obviously the reason you got into it in the first place. And hopefully you get enough sustaining usefulness out of like being in the theater when people watch it and laugh and cry and have a good time and whatever it happens to be like, 
like that better be a lot for five years because it might be a while before you get to make another one and before it gets to be seen by anyone or you make any money. I mean, it's just a rough place right now for independent film. And I'm not even, I'm not speaking from like, woe is me. I honestly have done director of photography work way more than I've done directing work in the last Mm. 10 years or 20 years um, on independent films. So I'm not even saying like my projects haven't worked out. So the industry sucks. It's not that I swear. Um, cause I don't know if my two projects this year will work out or not because I have a movie coming out in December and a movie coming out in January. Talk to me in February and maybe I'll be like, yeah, the industry <laughs> sucks. Screw those assholes. No, but I'm just like, um, the, the ones that I've DP'd, some have come out and some haven't. And, but none of them have been like, oh, man, that was great. We made triple our budget. We're going to make another one tomorrow. You know, that's right. just a that's a tough thing these days. Yeah. Well, so tell me about your movies. What what are you making? What are you excited about? And what's it? I guess it's hard to be like, what is hard not to be like, what is it like? Because we, we can only measure things by like other things that we've seen. But like, what are your movies? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so. If we're going to talk about Brick Madness, I mean, that's a mockumentary. It's sort of in the style of Christopher Guest, even though we haven't been told specifically that they were too similar, which has been really good. We've got some great feedback about that. So Christopher Guest makes movies like um, uh, Best in Show, A Mighty Wind, and uh, Waiting for Guffman. And then there was a, you know, Spinal Tap. He wasn't uh, quite as, he he didn't write and direct the same as the other ones, but he was heavily involved in that. And um, so... Those are, that was something that I just really liked the theme of and the style of and all that. And we went to go make that. And this is like pre-office. Well, not quite, but this is around the time of The Office. This is pre um, a lot of the other shows that came out after um, after that. I'm trying, I might be messing up my timelines, but Modern Family, Parks and Rec, The Office. This is all this stuff that like people didn't realize those were mockumentaries, yeah. They thought they just like didn't get it. They're like, oh, sometimes Jim looks at the camera like yeah. they didn't they didn't get the concept of that because they never like we never saw the crew in any of those. And they sort of played hard, fast and loose with the rules of like how that worked and all that. So anyway, that's something that we're super accustomed to now, but we just didn't know mm-hmm. the name of it. And we didn't know how, the, the machine behind it of what mm-hmm. was happening. But but these days. This that's the type of movie that Brick Madness is, and it's comedy, and it's got a lot of smart asses in it, and it's got a lot of like stuff that sort of has multiple levels. Hopefully, with the comedy, s- some uh, sort of broad um, slapsticky type stuff, but there's hopefully a lot of stuff that's sort of subversive or or just I, I like dry comedy a lot, and mm-hmm. you know my friends and I worked for many weekends um getting together and we would just have these writing weekends and that's all we did for three days was just Mm -hmm. like write jokes and try to get up try to punch up the script and try to come up with better concepts and all that stuff so we spent a lot of time just like trying to pack it as full of funny stuff what we thought was funny as possible um and that's really what it is and in at the underneath that i think it has a lot of heart i think it's really about how lego and brick building is like a culture that most people wouldn't realize that adults are still doing. It's just like a kid's thing that really is a thriving art scene in and of itself. And so I think there's a lot to be said for that sort of thing as it relates to a lot of other art disciplines that people wouldn't think is art. 
you know, just because you don't have a paintbrush in your hand or a guitar in your hand doesn't mean you're not creating art. Yeah. And so uh, that was really what we tried to get across on screen. And just, it's fun. There's no politics at all. There's, <laughs> yeah. there's no, there's no coronavirus. There's like, it's very, I wouldn't say it's completely lighthearted because it's not a hundred percent accurate, but it's, um, it's, it's a fun movie that you can walk away with, with a smile. Um, it's got a great rap song at the end that we made for the movie. <laughs> and it just, I think you, I think it's one of those things that you can walk away with and be like, all right, that was fun. I like that. This is, yeah. this is cool. I'm a little happier than I was two hour, hour and a half ago. Mm. So that's what we're yeah. going for. And then what's the other one ones whatever <laughs> oh yeah yeah so better so better is a very different project that's a documentary an actual documentary and that's um uh we got together with this guy jonathan baylor he's a uh, new york times bestselling author has a whole program uh sane solution it's called and we had done work with him in the past uh six eight years ago something and done a lot of stuff. And so we went, he approached us and we basically decided to make this documentary. It's called Better. And um, it's about diabetes. It's about diabetes and obesity. And it's about shame and uh, how your thoughts work and how how we've been lied to about what foods we should be eating and how sort of um, how we've been programmed to be ignorant about how our bodies work with regards to brain, gut, and hormones and how all that system ties together. So that's, we interviewed uh, something like 22 um, people that suffer from diabetes and have, uh, many of them are, you know, diabetes heroes, as we call them in the movie, that have, have conquered it in one way or another. And we talked to five um, uh, Harvard doctors um, to get, you know, the real science behind all this stuff. So it was it was an incredible journey. It's, I think, a very helpful, useful, like actual real world tangible movie that you can watch and you could like change your life the minute after watching that movie. And I think it has an excellent message and just can get people to to feel and believe in a way that they hadn't, you know, an hour and a half before. It, it definitely has something there that I haven't seen in many other movies. Yeah, definitely. Um, Jonathan Baylor does ring a bell, and I feel like I've I've heard the name through other podcasts or whatever. But um, yeah, it could be he had a he had a book. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, a couple books. Um, the uh, the calorie myth is one of them, and uh, yeah, great books, simple books. I mean, it's not too not overly simple, but um, it's not a five hundred page tome with a lot <laughs> yeah. of misleading directions. Like it's clear to the point. Like this is. This is if you want to stay thin, stay healthy, here's what you do, proven by science, go for it. And yeah. it's really great. Yeah. Uh, since you, I mean, the, the films that you're mentioning are like kind of two sides of like, it's a mockumentary and then a documentary. I feel like there's, there's a difference to, I feel like. Uh, even for me, whenever I write songs that are like about myself versus like stories that I'm just telling, uh, there's a difference between like interacting with fiction and interacting with nonfiction. I guess. How do you approach that? Yeah. I mean, at it, it the, it the core of anything, you're trying to tell a story in the most effective way possible. You're trying to tap into what is true in the world and you're trying to 
have a, a viewpoint that is uniquely yours so that you can bring something new to what is true in, in the world so that other people can hopefully gauge it for themselves and understand it in a new way. I mean, that, that, that's at the genesis of anything that you're being honest about. And so I think whether you're telling a completely true story or a completely made up story, you, you still have to approach it from the same direction. And I think that's true about comedy versus drama. You know, that that's one of those things that any great sort of comedian acting in film will tell you is like, you play the line straight. You play it as if it were drama. You don't actually change much of what you're doing because the line in the situation is funny. The, that stuff is funny, but your awareness of it being funny is you is very rarely the funny part, you know? So I think at the core of everything is just the truth of the situation and, and that's what powers it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, kind of a little bit more on just like creativity and art and stuff. Is there such a thing as bad filmmaking or bad movies? Oh shit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Michael Bay is terrible in my opinion. I mean, there's, <laughs> he's awful. And it's not because he's bad at making, I mean, in my opinion, he's all, he's bad at making a lot of action scenes too, but, but not in, but that's not his main problem. His main problem in my opinion is that he doesn't think much of his audience. He, hmm. it, he thinks that they're very ignorant. He thinks that or at least his movies would purvey this fact. Um, he he doesn't have much respect for them, so he's going to hold their hands through stuff and like dumb it down as much as possible. He's going to, I mean, literally reuse footage from old movies. I don't know if you've seen <laughs> those things before, but literally takes footage from Bad Boys and puts it in into a, a Transformers movie and sells you the same shit twice. I mean, that's. That's a line that I don't think you should cross no matter what. That's just that's just insulting. And so um, I don't think he takes the time as a filmmaker, and I'm using him as a proxy for other filmmakers. Mm-hmm. I don't think he, they take the time to make sure that it works out on paper as part of the respect that they have for the process. And yeah. I think that's fundamentally insulting. So... That's what I don't like about that situation, um, you know, because and I don't really think of that as art per se. I don't think of that as like something that's not a sto- Transformers four is not a story that when he was 12, he felt like he had to tell like it was important to him in the world as as how to, you know, how to make people understand th- the human condition in a unique new way. It's yeah. not that. And there's nothing in it that is that. I haven't watched the damn movie. I don't know. But I mean, <laughs> I have to believe there's nothing in it that touches at the core the truth of something in a way that could help people reimagine or or understand the human condition. It just doesn't exist. And so at that point, you're not even trying, man. You're just trying to make money and you're good at that. But you're not trying to give us what, in my opinion, art is made for. And if you can't do that on top of or sort of subversively in a shitty action movie. If you can't at least try to do that, then like get out, man. I don't know. That's, that's what I think. And, and there's plenty of music that's like that too. I mean, for yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, you know, country music is just rife with it of that sort of selling you the same thing that they sold you last week. 
and, and just, you know, paint by numbers. And that's just mm -hmm. like, you have an opportunity to do something better and you don't take it. Um, and you're the reason why the industry as a whole is doing, in my opinion, things that are like regressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. That's my take on it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh, and kind of alongside that, but it's a little bit different too, because I mean, I usually ask this question, which is like, do you separate art from the artist in the context of music? But music usually has like a lot less people involved. Whereas in, in filmmaking, like there's so many different things that everyone involved is doing that it's not even necessarily like the, the main creatives, like vision in, in every way. But like, I guess it, do you separate art from the artist is the core of the question. Um, well, I mean, <laughs> from a Michael Bay perspective, <laughs> I don't, it, it, no, no, no. Just in terms of like, it, what you're talking about is if you are a band, it, it, go back to a singer songwriter, right? So mm -hmm. you make your own songs, you play your own instruments. Maybe you have a couple session players or something, but it's not much. It's like, it's basically you and mm -hmm. you got an engineer and you got a, you know, you got three people in the booth or whatever. Um, you, you're not taking a bunch of people's lives and then like making them work on schlocky crap. Like mm -hmm. it may be three people, maybe you suck and it's maybe it's three people, but it's not 500 people or 10 or a thousand people spending like large parts of their lives, a year of their lives um, to make something that is absolutely replaceable, recyclable, like it, it, it will not stand the test of time and has nothing. It, it was not intended to stand the test of time. And so to me, like if I want to get really, you know, uh, what do you maliciously profound about it? I would say that like someone like Michael Bay, who has, in my opinion, that fundamental disregard for the process is actually doing that. Not only is he choosing to make a thing. And once again, it's like it's other filmmakers, too. Right, right. <laughs> but he's choosing to make a piece of shit and the, he's also like taking all these other 1 million man hours with along with him like hey make my piece of shit for me you'll get paid that's cool everyone likes to get paid but you're going to know that this is garbage and there's something insidious about that that in music I don't think it exists in the same way at all cuz it's not mm. the same type of team sport it's not a 500 person team oh yeah it is a four or five or ten person team or whatever it happens to be um you know so i just think it's different i don't think it's nearly as bad yeah yeah but then it, it does kind of go into like because because i i think i don't know i i rewatched the lord of the rings movies recently mm -hmm. with my wife and it's like ooh, harvey weinstein's name is like right there in the opening yeah, credits. Yeah, from that perspective, that's a, that's a different <laughs> thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the the Woody Allen, uh, Roman mm -hmm. Polanski, Harvey Weinstein sort of thing, or or um, for instance, uh, Kevin Spacey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like these dudes suck. Um, clearly, they've done bad things. Uh, do you separate them? Yeah, those that separation. That's a harder thing to say, and. <clears throat> You know, I would posit, too, that people act out on things. People create art, like deep, important art a lot of times, from their own 
like internal struggle. There are, there are deep seated problems that they have with the world and with themselves. Right. And so the idea that you would only get art from people who are like happy or well adjusted would mean you'd <laughs> get true. a lot of shitty art. Like it yeah. wouldn't happen. And so there's a reason that we quasi deify a lot of people who died young too. Mm-hmm. You know, if we're talking about the 27 club and all that, that we were reading the whole thing about Edgar Allan Poe. He died when he was 40 um, mm. from mysterious, from mis- <laughs> within mysterious ways. Um, but, you know, the 27 Club, like those are all tortured people in one way or another. And drugs were obviously a part of all of those stories. But <laughs> they made the stuff that we care about and that has stood the test of time because there was something deep within them that needed to be solved. And mm. some of them were able to solve it at least for the time being talking about like Chris Cornell or something, mm-hmm. but then later probably found a way that it then was unsolved again, maybe. Um, but what I want to say, so it's, it's, you don't want only art from people that are happy. That's going to suck. Yeah. You also don't want art from pedophiles. That's also going <laughs> to suck, but you don't know where that line is until it happens to that thing. And it might make you feel weird about it later, but I don't think it necessarily ruins the thing. I mean, mm-hmm. that's up to any, I think it ruins it as much. I, I think it's very much a personal thing to where like, you don't want to listen to the song. I, for forever, uh, there was a Bob Marley song that I did not want to hear. And it was cause I had an ex-girlfriend, you know, whatever scenario that mm-hmm. was. And, um, that was a, that was a painful song to hear for me. So I didn't listen to that for a long, long time for like, decades i would like leave the room or shut it off or whatever <laughs> happened to be right and then eventually you get over it or you make a choice to get over it and mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that song it's not bob marley's fault it's not even that person's fault it's my fault and so i think it's almost as unique as that sort of not quite but it's sort mm-hmm. of a unique situation like that where it's like you're bringing context to the thing that wasn't isn't the actual thing does it make it icky sure do you want to make a conscious choice not to support them in the future yeah totally does that make mm-hmm. that thing bad that's up to you and i don't think that we should go around saying other people can't watch it because of that yeah 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 and know. especially with the context of film it is like i mean even looking at lord of the rings it's like so many people worked on that there was so much creativity and wonderful things happening that just like a few terrible people just involved in the project doesn't like it can't ruin the project because all of these beautiful things came from it you know yeah yeah absolutely and i love the lord of the rings movies and you know i mean honestly the hobbit uh, cartoon was one of the reasons i got into filmmaking i think like it was just my, my favorite thing my brother and i used to watch it all the time when we were kids and um yeah i, I love that whole universe and and what it's done for um for fantasy um mm-hmm was really great. So, so yeah, I don't, I don't think you can pin it to that. If you didn't mm-hmm. want to watch Brown Bunny cause you thought the Vincent Gallo was really weird. It's a little bit different. That's like an auteur <laughs> movie. That's like a very specific example. You're like, Oh, there's a weird thing happened during that movie. Fair enough. But, mm-hmm. um, I don't think that transcends everything he's ever done or certainly mm-hmm. not everything that Harvey Weinstein was ever a part of like that <laughs> to me is too much. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I guess here's, two more questions on this front one kind of silly and the other uh less so but so first it's it seems like 
the movie industry is very fixated for some reason on doing a lot of remakes. Uh, So for you, if you had the budget, uh, what's something that you would want to remake in your own style or in your own way? Oh, man. You'd have to take something, in my opinion, that would be very, um, you know, you'd have to switch the genre of it or something. I, mm. it, it would just be very hard to take something that was already made and remake it because if it was, or take something that was like, say if you did um, um, the, the, the uh, Inglorious Bastards. So like, mm. that's a good remake because it's not a remake and you change the title and it's like, that's not what the movie, the original movie was or anything. Like mm. you're taking, you're taking what you felt was the theme or, or, or you're taking a couple sparks from the movie or that was the original and then just like reimagining them. I think that's a way better way to go. Um, there, there was, a, there was that weird, you know, Gus Van Sant movie, um, Psycho that he did with Vince Vaughn. And that was like, he basically said the reason he did it was so that he could make a remake that was identical so that no one else would be able to make a remake, which is a really backwards way of like honoring a movie. That's, I don't know if that was like a post facto sort of thing. He decided (laughs) after he's like, why did I make the exact same movie? Uh, Maybe so that other people can't. That's, that's a good, I'll say (laughs) that. I don't know what happened, but anyway, that was, that's like a, it's a very uh, virtuous way to approach it theoretically, mm. but probably <laughs> is weird. But anyway, um, I would, I would want to take something that I really liked, like a little within art. There are glimpses of things like these little nuts inside this little, um, you know, a big bang fucking flicker in something yeah. that, that you can take. And you're like, I just want that thing. I want to encapsulate that thing into something else. And that doesn't mean that that's most of the story or most of the anything. Um, you know, I think that's why people fall in love with other people sometimes is because they like just that one thing about them. <laughs> and that's enough to like help them bridge all the other gaps. And hopefully, mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to stay together, then the other stuff actually works. But, um, mm. I think you can't underestimate that. And so I don't, I don't have a movie in mind that I would absolutely want to remake, but I think that there would be some little Genesis core there that I would do in, in, in making a much different way. And, you know, there's absolutely movies that nowadays they just couldn't do the CG that, or they couldn't do any CG. They couldn't do the effects that they wanted to back then that they could do now. I think horror movies are, could be a good example of that. We just watched the it chapter one and chapter two. Mm -hmm. And I don't watch very many horror movies. And I thought those movies were fucking awesome. I really like those movies. And, and, and very much from a perspective of like, you just couldn't do that sort of stuff. You, there's a, you know, a scene with an old lady in it chapter two. And and I was like, dude, that was, that was legit, scary, creepy. Like Mm -hmm. that got me. And that's Mm -hmm. super rare in horror movies, any movies. And, um, you just couldn't do that 30 years ago. I mean, how are you going to, how are you going to make that scene with real yeah. things? You can't, it's impossible. So, so I mean, that's something that I think you could take a horror movie and remake it. And, and if you didn't lose the key part of what made it creepy, you could turn it into something better for sure. Yeah. 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 And then what advice do you have for other people that are starting out in filmmaking or just creative process collaborative that uh i guess in a way you kind of wish you had had or just advice in general 
Yeah, I mean, well, in terms of Brick Madness, I wish I would have got it out five years ago, I think, for sure. <laughs> I, I just wish I would have got it done sooner. I mean, I had... What, what's a trip about that movie, too, is I have the kid... We shot... Excuse me, have you seen a Lego movie? Original one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. So anyway, there's a kid at the end of Lego movie, the actual real-life kid mm-hmm. with um, Will Ferrell. And he's in our movie. He was in our movie, in our Lego movie, before he was in the Lego movie. Oh, wow. And they were like, he had come back, he and his mom and other brother, his brother's in it too. And uh, they'd come back to shoot uh, uh, and more scenes or whatever. They'd done half of their work and they came back to do their half of their works a year later or whatever it was. And um, they were like, well, yeah, we were in this little thing. It was like Lego related, really weird. And, <laughs> and then like later they're like, no, it was the Lego movie. Like yeah. I'm in this, it's, I'm the main <laughs> character per se. So anyway, it was really interesting. Um, so my point is if my movie would have came out sooner to that, I think it would have been advantageous, not only um, for timeline wise, but um, with regards to how the whole, um, the whole system was the whole independent distribution system. So if I could talk to me yeah. back then, I would have been like, just do it no matter what, just get it done, take a month off mm-hmm. of work and make sure it finishes. Um, I would say talking to me, um, man, it's, it, or, or to other young filmmakers or other people who are starting to try and make yeah, sure. I mean, I'm going to have an old man answer and that's going to be like, pay attention to fundamentals, know what you're actually trying to create, learn the rules before you break them, you know, understand basic premises of how cameras work and photography works and all that stuff. It's not that hard to learn and it will never change essentially. I mean, it will get into 3D and holograph and all this (laughs) other crazy stuff eventually, but like the basics of how how a photo camera works are always going to be useful to you as a filmmaker. Um, I would learn the basic structures of stories, the basic structure of a joke, like any of that stuff. So at least you understand like what is and isn't working. And, you know, most importantly, most importantly, I would just do, I would just keep making stuff and try to make it better and keep working. Like don't spend your time talking about how great it'll be or all the filmmakers you like or all the, you know, try to soak your woes or whatever with why no one's watching your stuff. I mean, make stuff, make it better, keep getting better. And then you got to promote and you got to think that, you know, that's, that's what a lot of people, I think probably people are better at it these days because of YouTube. But I think in my uh, professional career, I've seen a lot of people that are like, well, I like to make movies. I don't like to make people other make other people watch movies i don't want to i don't want to deal with the distribution part i don't want to deal with the business part i'm i'm an artist i'm not a businessman mm. and i'm like yeah no one gives a shit dude either you do that or no one watches your movie there's no yeah. two ways about it and so making that not the icky part i think would be important if i could be like just know going in then that making the movie is a third a quarter a tenth of like the part you're going to actually have to do yeah, yeah, that's 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 the uh, um, you know I have jet skis um, that are old and crappy and it's it's not like I'm rich or anything but I have jet skis and it's like the the couple hours however the day a year that I actually get to take the jet skis out and have fun on the lake is that's the that's the on set part all the other stuff is putting making sure you take the batteries out so that all winter long they can not be ruining the batteries making sure you get registration maybe making sure you take care of the, the air and the tires make, like all this maintenance shit that no one wants to deal with um that's all the stuff that filmmaking is so that you can go out there for a couple hours on a sunday and go Wee! yeah 
yeah. like that's filmmaking with your friends and that's what you want to get toward all the other mm. shit you have to do to be able to get to that point and most people don't want to do that part because it sucks yeah 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 100 <laughs> mm. i uh, mean you played you've played on stage yeah mm. yeah and i mean th- there's all the stuff around that right oh yeah it's no definitely it's <laughs> playing on stage that's the part you care about right that's what that's when you're alive yeah Mm. Well, I mean, th- but that's the thing. It's like every, every like rock, like biopic is like, oh, like then they like get up on stage and rock everyone's faces off. But then it's like, yeah, like you're saying, it's, it's like so many hours of rehearsal that like, or so many hours of practice, just like doing the same thing over and over again. And it's like, I enjoy that part of the process too. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's like the, the performing on stage is really exhilarating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I would assume that your favorite part is not sending out Facebook invites to a thing that 95% that's probably of the my people least you send part, out. Yeah. yeah, right? That <laughs> sucks. And that's what filmmaking is 100%. Like, got to get people there to this place to be in the audience. And they're not going to be seen much. And they're going to come up to me and they're going to be like, hey, in my shot, I want to. I'm like, dude, you're one of 20 people out there. And I'm sorry, but right now I do not have time for you. I'm just mm-hmm. trying to focus on this thing, man. I'm sorry. But anyway, it's all that other auxiliary stuff that is very hard to 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 get through to get to the part that you love which is like the actual on stage or the actual making the film or the actual like problem solving on set with your friends mm-hmm. to like make this scene yeah which is yeah exhilarating <laughs> switching gears to the hard questions and okay. yeah so what is the role of spirituality or religion in your life um yeah, so I was uh, brought up as a Baha'i, so a uh, member of the Baha'i faith. And so that's a fairly, what do you want to say? I, so I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do drugs, I don't do, uh, you know, the, there wasn't premarital sex. There's a number of things. So I was pretty straight, um, straight edge, and so, or am still. And so that changed my life a lot, probably compared to most people. So I would think that that would definitely be something that, like, um, what do you want to say? Just put me in a different, within different confines, no matter what, yeah. um, regardless of how my psyche was or anything else related mm-hmm. to that. Um, and you know, I still, uh, subscribe to that stuff. I think religions, a, a religion versus religious teachings versus the people you actually, you know, actually going to church, quote unquote, or wherever it happens to be. I think those are all sort of different parts of it. And so I think it's fair to dissect them in some ways and, and to deal with your, um, your relationship with God or, or a higher being of some sort is, is important. And in a, it's hard to describe that, that has its own usefulness and its own house where, and, also going to church and being with other people who are like-minded also has its usefulness in its own house and having that inhabit your soul when you're not in church or rationally thinking about God also has its usefulness in its own house. And I think that when people in society, in my opinion, when they conflate the three and say that like, take it or leave it with all three, I think that's a pretty myopic view of how something so transcendent would work. Yeah. Yeah. I like how you put that. (laughs) Thank you. What is your definition of God? 
So my uh, my wife now, um, at the time, at, we weren't quite married when she was going through a philosophy class and we had to do a bunch of stuff about God and how to prove God and all these other things. And, um, you know, my definition of God is, I think, the the definition of unknowable. Like, the idea that we could understand a God makes that no longer a God. It's, hmm. it, it is by definition that which is unknowable and that which makes us not a God. Because if we could understand it, then we would also be gods and then they, it would cease to be a God and we would cease to be gods. We would just be, you know, beings that were of a similar nature, which mm-hmm. in my opinion, or my understanding of it would be that we can't be. So that's what a God is. It's basically an unknowable thing um, that is omnipresent and omniscient and omnipowerful and all those sort of things. Yeah, that's cool. I think it's the first time, uh, at least on this podcast, that I've heard that form of definition. (laughs) And that's that's cool. It's from a, you know, very much like a logical, like, how can I prove Mm. that there's a God? And I'm like, well, I can't, but I can prove that you can't disprove it. Like, that's mm-hmm. what I feel like I was trying to do because I'm like, well, then a God wouldn't. And you're like, mm, you're using words and logic that we use. Therefore, it would not apply because it would not mm-hmm. be a God. That's my mm-hmm. like pretentious way of sort of <laughs> figuring that out in my own mind, I guess. Sure. So, yeah. Anyway. What is free will and do you believe in it? Yeah, I'm not a big proponent of like of everything is predetermined for us and that we have a mm-hmm. destiny and that all that stuff's all been decided. I don't really buy into that much. Um, I think free will is, has sort of in my previous understanding of like church versus religion versus, um, versus God or spirituality. I'm like, those are different silos to an extent. And I would say that, um, free will is governed by like things that are of your soul and that's very intangible, obviously things that are of your nature and things that are of your nurture. And those are very like simplistically biochemical. It's like you like going back to my movie better. So, um, one of the very interesting things we learned about is, or I learned about the people talking to me knew about it, but, um, is like, you have uh, more neurotransmitters in your gut than you do in your brain. Mm-hmm. And these neurotransmitters come in a variety of uh, different types of, of bacteria. And they literally tell you what they want because they feed on certain types of foods. So you have um, bacteroidetes and uh, firmicutes and a few other ones um, predominantly. And like some of them like sugar and some of them like sort of like vegetables, let's say, for example, oversimplifying. So these things tell you that when you feed them more sugar, the firmicutes, I believe, you feed them more sugar, they want more sugar, they make more of themselves, they multiply within your gut, and then they ask for more sugar. Like that's sort Mm -hmm. of, from a very basic level, that's what's happening. So that means that your body, like what are you, are you the things that are in your gut, the billions of things you don't really understand, they're just bacteria? Are you everything around you? You know, so like all those levels of like what makes me Justin is really hard to understand. And if you're talking from a purely physiological level, then I think you can say like, well, I'm all of that because those are all impulses that I have to deal with on any given moment. So fair enough. 
So then what are you outside of that? Like what's your soul and what, what are the other intangible things that um, supersede that sort of level of pure uh, chemical or um, electrical reaction in your body? So there's other stuff outside of that, I would believe, and I would believe in a soul and I would believe that we are, um, we can't prove um, there's a thing called the hundredth monkey. And um, so basically the premise of this is like there's a 99 monkeys and they're doing something and they figure out how to use a tool. And then I'm going to get this wrong, but basically somehow on another Island, the thing that these monkeys figured out, once they figured it out, the other monkeys on the other Island figured out, figured it out too. But it only started as a chain reaction of these monkeys figuring it out. And then those like, basically just absorbing this content from the global consciousness somehow mm. of understanding like, oh shit, there's this new thing. And we're talking about monkeys. They're not like tapped into the internet. They're not like consciously thinking about this. They're not used to using tools. It's like none of that stuff. But this is a, um, I believe it was a, I'm fairly sure it was like an actual documented thing. Um, almost positive. It was an actual realistic anthropological thing of some sort or, or, you know, uh, zoological. Mm -hmm. And, um, so the point being is that we are not in 100% in charge of our own thoughts, not from any of those levels and certainly not from a global, global consciousness level. You know, I think this year is a very good indicator of that, like <laughs> how we feel about the world and about our station and uh, about the chaos that's inherent in the human condition, like that shit's all ratcheted up to 10, obviously. And just like political and, and all that stuff is like so pervasive, right? It's just like hitting you and washing over you. And I think uh, that certainly happened to me, like, you know, one week I'm just like, oh, this is fucking rough, man. Like why? I don't know. It's rough. Yeah. So I don't know if you feel the same, but. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean this week has been or like this past week has has been that so like yeah no i totally <laughs> yeah it just it just hits you and you don't you know are you like is it because uh because i saw that thing on facebook and like no i feel like crap and you're like yeah it seems deeper than that it seems more mm. more symbiotically shitty than that that's what I would say. Mm. So yeah, free, so free choice. I don't, I, yes, we have a lot of, we have free choice, I think, but I think it is on a much more subdivided level than we would ever be able to understand. That's mm. what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that whole like process as you were thinking aloud is exactly why I love asking that question. <laughs> That's good. I'm glad to hear it. Thank you. What happens when we die? Um, you know, I'm pretty traditionalist with that sort of thing. I don't, reincarnation doesn't totally make sense to me and I'm not saying it's wrong. I just, uh, I don't, I don't get it by it, whatever. Um, you know, as a Baha'i, we believe that essentially you are, when you're in the womb versus when you're a human versus when you're in the afterlife, those are sort of similar states of being. So uh, for the person within that context for the, for the life. Um, so when you're in the womb, you don't realize that you are a baby. You don't have a concept of that. You don't know where you're going or what you're doing or any of that stuff. You're doing a thing and you're able to like, um, what do you want to say? You're not consciously making choices about things necessarily, but your body is being prepared within its little world for the next world, this world. 
And mm-hmm. when your body is properly prepared and, and all the things happen as they are supposed to happen, then you come out and you're, you know, a bouncing baby boy ready to take on the world. And, you know, more or less what the Baha'i teachings are saying is like, that is akin to what you are then in the spiritual world. So once you die, and I believe that we go on and something else happens with us, and I believe that we don't really understand it, we can't really understand it, just like I wouldn't be able to understand it if I were in the womb, what this world world would be about, nor could anyone explain it to me, because I just wouldn't, it, it doesn't make sense to me. It's a whole different you know, order of magnitude of understanding. And so when you die, you go on to the next world. And that is one, not of bodies, obviously, that is one that is closer to God and more, um, more, more spiritual from a simplistic viewpoint. And, um, that means that we can't really understand it, but it is a different thing and that we are preparing our bodies, our souls rather in this world for that, that new reality. And so that's what I like that's what I believe in. I don't know that there's an easy way to prove or disprove those sorts of things. And so that's, I would say, what gives me comfort and, and allows me to make good choices, hopefully most of the time. You know, if you're trying to take care of your soul, that's probably for someone who's in the position to be able to have that be choices that they can make and feel like they, they have agency over, then I think that's a pretty good place to be. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. <laughs> if I were a murderer, you know, it's like, <laughs> man, yeah, I mean, just like, like, but I'm being serious. It's like people who are in that situation are not there because everything was great when they were kids. You know, they're not there because these are all like, it's just like everyone, it, it, something that I say is like, and it's, it's sort of a free will sort of thing too. Cause it, it's very specific to that almost is like, um, I'm going to muck up the word slightly, but people always do what they're capable of doing in that instant that they're doing it. So mm-hmm. like the moment before there's infinite free will and infinite choices, the moment of it, they're doing what the trillions of the, the infinite amount of things that have interacted to get them to that moment. That's what they were capable of doing at that moment or else they would have done something else. And then that yeah. would have been the thing that they were capable of at that moment. Yeah. And so like, I can be mad at someone the instant, you know, and I'm talking, you know, a billionth of a second or whatever, the instant before they do the terrible thing, I can be like, I can have a problem with that and I can be mad at that, but I sort of have to set that aside for the moment that they do the action because like clearly they were compelled by the rest of their existence into that moment or else it wouldn't have happened. And mm-hmm. so that gives me a little bit of like solace with, um, with regards to what people do. And, and I'm not really speaking of murder, but that's the like, obviously the, uh, what do you want to say? The, the infinite example of that, the theological conclusion of that. But I'm talking about just being an asshole or whatever, just mm-hmm. doing a jerk thing to you. You're like, eh, it's like, I get why he did that. Like I get why mm-hmm. that happened right now. And I'm mad at him. I'm mad at him or her or whatever, but I know that like there's reasons and mm. that sucks, but like I get it. So <laughs> I don't know. I just tend to, I tend to feel bad for people who make bad choices a lot of times because I know that they didn't get there alone. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, I like that a lot. <laughs> I said it and I was like, I like these words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But anyway, I spent a lot of time thinking about this sort of stuff. 
Yeah, so. me too, which is why I ask these questions. <laughs> yeah, totally. How do you determine what good behavior is? Um, I look at the world in a utilitarian sort of point of view more than other point of views, but I don't know all that stuff. So, I mean, I think that's probably a fairly ignorant way to approach it because I just don't understand enough about the names of all this stuff. But anyway, I like, I like utilitarian. It makes sense to my mind. And, and in a lot of ways, that's like how much good are you creating or how much good are you destroying and, and, and seeing it from that point of view. And that's like, like, why are you, you know, I go around and pick up trash or whatever. Like I have a big problem with like noise pollution or actual pollution or trash or things like that. Or like parking in the wrong spot or all these little, like things that people don't give a shit about usually. And for some reason to my brain, it just gets fixated on those sorts of things. And then I have to remind myself to look at the big, the, um, the big picture, but like that stuff matters to me. And so from a utilitarian point of view, I'm always sort of arguing with myself about like what matters in the big picture versus what matters in the small things to make the big picture better, you know? And I think that's the only way I can sort of gauge a lot of those things. It's hard because mm -hmm. you get into difficult territory because then at some point you're like, well, what should we do? And you're like, well, eugenics makes sense. And then you're like, <laughs> nope, can't cross that line. That's a bad yeah. thing. So you have to, <laughs> you have to temper it with the other stuff that, makes us human and allows us to to not cross lines basically which is mm -hmm. which is hard sometimes yeah 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 i don't know if i answered uh, the question no i mean pretty much you said utilitarianism that's like pretty much how you determine it so <laughs> yeah 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 i think it's i i i am not one who subscribes to the concept that there is no absolute good or absolute or, um, that, that there are not good things or bad things and that everything is just a thing. I don't think that's accurate mm -hmm. by any means. And so I, I think we do have ways to classify that sort of stuff. And I do think it's important within humankind that we all have to live together to be able to sort of agree on that stuff. And that's why yeah. we have laws. That's why we have um, even what you would say is social niceties and in the way that we behave, the way that I'm behaving with you when we have a conversation and all that stuff. I think there are important rules within that stuff. Then unless mm -hmm. you have a really good reason to break them, don't break them. You know? Yeah. I think that matters and that's part mm -hmm. of being a good person. Yeah. Uh, so there's more of these deep questions that I want to ask, but this episode is already going like a little bit longer than I wanted to. And so oh, no. I'm, I'm going to continue asking you these questions on the second podcast. So, but for now, uh, just where can we find you and your things? Thank you for doing this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. It was fun. Um, yeah, so you can find me on, I don't do Instagram a whole lot, but it's easy to remember. It's at Justin Makes Movies. So that's one thing. Uh, my movie Brick Madness is on brickmadnessmovie.com. And you can find me on Facebook. If you, if you can spell my name right, you can find me anywhere because I'm the only Justin McAleese that I've ever heard of mm -hmm. um, spelled mm -hmm. the actual way that my name is spelled. So if you type me in Google, I'm the first multiple pages because I'm the only one, more or less. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, hit me up on Instagram and I would love to have you go to watch my movie when it comes out and then bettermovie.com will be the other thing. Yeah. You can find everything that I do on my website, SantiagoRamones.com. I make music. Bloom is available now, streaming everywhere. Put it on in the background or show it to your friends so you can all enjoy it together. 
You can also buy it on Bandcamp and get bonus content so you can sit alone in the dark with your headphones on and listen to the album in its entirety while reading and looking at the bonus content. I also make music with PowerCycle, an experimental electronic trio. Our first completely improvised album, Too Many Damn Cables, is streaming everywhere. To support this podcast, leave reviews, comments, tell your friends about it, and buy my music, because by supporting me, you're supporting the podcast. I always end the podcast with my three things. They shape my life philosophy. Those three things are, love never fails, it's going to be okay, I might be wrong.